Steve. There seem to be some lights out. Are all the lights on back there? How about the, there we go, there. Oh, now I can see. We're going to uh, pick it up in chapter 9 of Hebrews, our study. Last week we looked at the old sanctuary and how the old sanctuary, remember I said that how many chapters are devoted to the uh, creation account? Two. How many chapters are devoted to the, the old sanctuary? Fifty chapters. Why, are so, why so much material devoted to, those, to that one particular entity in the Old Testament, do you think? Why is it so important? Why is the sanctuary so important? It's a picture of whom? Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ important? It's the most important, right? So we saw last week how the old sanctuary was a powerful picture of Jesus Christ. And we just really scratched the surface. We didn't get to study it in depth. And uh, remember, the writer is urging his congregation to see that the old... The old covenant, the old sanctuary, the old sacrifices, the old priesthood, all these things were basically symbolic and they were pointing to Jesus. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Everything in the Bible points to Him. You can find Jesus in remarkable places uh, in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially. And I suggested to you that uh, his, his theme was really God doesn't ask you to let go of something without promising to provide something far better in return. And most of us understand that as you, as we learn to trust him, as we learn to walk by faith. And when he calls us into a deeper walk with him, when he calls us uh, to uh, give something up in our life that we've cherished for whatever his purposes might be, uh, we can do so with confidence that he's going to give us something in, in return that's far greater than that which we gave up. Amen. Life is like that. The Christian life is like that. It's a, it's a, a constant adventure of trusting the Lord. And I know that you, you know that. I want to look tonight, I want us to look at the, not the old sanctuary so much, but rather at the, uh, at the old service, more particularly at the, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and what went on on that Day of Atonement, and and again how it pictures Jesus Christ, and again it's remember it's a testimony, it's evidence to this congregation of Hebrews to let go of the old and embrace the new, embrace the new covenant, embrace Jesus with your whole heart. Don't be half-hearted about your faith. He's saying to them, uh, don't uh, uh, shrink back and don't be uh, just dependent on that which you've known from the past, the old. In the old sanctuary, the priests daily offered continued sacrifices. Uh, this was a regular, regular daily occurrence. In addition to that, every day they had to go into the holy place. And they would trim the wicks on the lamp and they would add new 
olive oil uh, to the branches of that lamp. And they would also put fresh incense on the altar. In addition, every Sabbath, they would go and they would put the fresh bread on the altar of consecrated bread. So the point is that they were, they were continually working, continually in and out of the holy place, uh, ministering on behalf of the people with respect to the sacrifices, with respect to the, the lampstand, with respect to the bread, the incense. The priests were continually ministering on behalf of the people. It was the never-ending never work of theirs. Can you understand, can you see how all of that service and all of that activity could picture somebody in his never-ending work on our behalf? Do you see that? Jesus is pictured through all the activity, all all the sacrifices, through all of the the work in the holy place and and the the, uh, exercise with all of the the furnishings that we described last week. These are pictures of Jesus Christ. He, He does not cease enlightening our lives. He doesn't cease in his work of nurturing and nourishing us. He does not cease in his work of interceding on our behalf. He is our high priest forever, and he continually is working on our behalf. And again, this is pictured just through the continual work of those priests in the Old Testament. This work of his is perpetual. It is unceasing. How wonderful it is to have our Lord and Savior who is constantly working on our behalf. I am so thankful that he doesn't forget me and he never ceases working on my behalf. Now that's just the daily work. Now I want to look at the Day of Atonement and the work of the High Priest and the Holy of Holies. Nothing pictures Jesus Christ more perfectly as the work of the High Priest in that Holy of Holies. When, whenever an Israelite sinned, his fellowship with God was broken. So the sacrifices for sin now were never, they were never finished. The priest's work, of course, was never done. People were constantly bringing their sacrifices, constantly confessing their sins, and the priests were constantly offering these sacrifices day after day after day after day for the Israelites because what? They weren't perfect and they were sinning. It's just like you and I. Are we perfect? No. Do we fall short? Do we sin? Yeah. Okay. And uh, aren't you glad that we are not uh, Hebrews, that we're not Jews, in the sense that we have to bring sacrifices daily to the temple or to the sanctuary so that they have to be offered on our behalf? That gets very expensive. Do you know that? Okay. And it, it's bloody and it's messy. I mean, you've got to drag some sheep along and you know, bring your scooper with you. I just... I'm glad that I'm not a Hebrew. <laughs> so in, in spite of all the sacrifices that were being offered for all of these, all of these sins, there, were also, uh, there was also the possibility of unknown sins, forgotten sins. And these things would kind of accumulate in life, don't they? Uh, there are things in our life that we, we kind of push under the carpet, we forget about, sometimes conveniently. Uh, sometimes we don't remember. Uh, we sin many times out of ignorance, don't we? 
And these things do accumulate in our life. And they create, I think, uh, dis-ease in our life. That's why confession is so important. They were confessing things. Sometimes you're frustrated, you can't sleep at night, things are going on, and you can't figure out what's wrong. And it could be that there's something in your life that needs to be dealt with. I'm not saying always, but that certainly could be um, a, a situation. So the point is that there are sins, there, there were problems, there were issues uh, for which no sacrifice had been made. So these people had committed sins, and uh, they were unconfessed sins, they were forgotten sins, they were sins of ignorance and so forth. No sacrifice had been made for them. This is what the day of uh, covering was all about. This was the day of atonement, was to deal with these sins. It, it would make sacrifice for all those sins that had not yet been covered over by the daily sacrifices. It was a great day of liberation for the conscience, as you might well imagine. Some, some of us are plagued with, with those things in the back of my home. Have I taken care of everything? Am I, am I, is everything in, in right order? And, 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 and sometimes that can drive you nuts, can't it? it wouldn't it be nice if there's just one, one final deal that could just wipe it all away and you could have confidence in that? There is, isn't there? Aren't you glad? But see, this for the Jew, this was the Day of Atonement. This was one day out of the year when all of those forgotten, uh, unsure, unknown sins of ignorance, when all of those sins finally could be taken care of, <clears throat> at least symbolically. It's a great day of liberation for the conscience. The Israelite knew that whatever sins may have been missed in the daily sacrifices now could be taken care of. The slate could be wiped clean. At least it could be symbolically for a while. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was a time of release and a time of relief. You hear this collective sigh of relief when the high priest finally comes out of the Holy of Holies that one last time, and all the people go, the sacrifice is accepted, the slate is wiped clean, and there's relief. But that relief, remember, is only for a while, isn't it? Because that sacrifice has to be offered again the next year. And those daily sacrifices have to start up the next day again, don't they? You see? So it gets to be a problem. Now, in Leviticus chapter 16, uh, you, we're not going to turn there, but I just want to sh- tell you that's where you'll find the details of the Day of Atonement and what the, what the high priest does. I just want to give you a, an overview of that day. Starting very early in the morning on the Day of Atonement, the high priest underwent his first ritual cleansing. And he, he underwent these ritual cleansing about four times throughout that day. And as he, as he cleanses himself, he puts on these ritual robes. They're very, very rich and ornate robes. And the robes of the high priest... They have on them the breastplate, the ephod, and remember those were symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. The, the breastplates symbolized his, his uh, taking uh, the 12 tribes on his heart. He had a heart for the people, and the ephod uh, symbolized uh, the fact that he uh, had strength for them, or he uh, could be empowered on their behalf. And then he began the daily sacrifice, the normal daily sacrifices that would be offered. 
Unlike Jesus Christ, however, because he symbolizes Christ, but unlike Christ, he has to offer a sacrifice for himself because he also is a sinner. After finishing all these sacrifices, he takes off these rich embroidered robes of glory, let's call them. He takes them off. He undergoes another ritual bathing. And then after that, he puts on a white linen garment. It has no decorations, has no ornamentation. It was in this garment now that he is going to perform the sacrifice of atonement. This is the garment he's going to wear when he goes in to the Holy of Holies. It's fascinating. I wonder if they understood, I wonder if the high priest understood what the picture meant of that white linen garment, totally unadorned, in contrast to the very elaborate high priestly garments. Let me tell you what I think it pictures. The high priest symbolized Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ stripped himself voluntarily of all of his glory and became the humblest of the humble, didn't he? He dressed himself in human flesh. He stripped off his glory. He dressed himself in human flesh. Pure, but plain and unadorned. Isaiah says he wasn't much to look at in terms of, of uh, his person. But in all of his humility, he never, ever lost his holiness. He never lost his purity. So the white linen garment pictures, the high priest puts this white linen garment on, it pictures Jesus putting on human flesh. The garment is unadorned, his human flesh is unadorned. Not attractive. Nothing that would call your attention to him necessarily. Uh, we'd say, well, he's a, he's a big man. He's a handsome man. He's a charismatic man. Nothing like that necessary to call attention to his humanity. Very simple. Just like the simple, simple garment that he wore. Now, when the high priest was done with the sacrifice of atonement, he put the robes of glory back on. Does that remind us of anything? Sure. It reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? In John chapter 17, verse 5, this is Jesus' prayer the night before he dies. It's called his high priestly prayer. In verse 5 of that prayer, anticipating what would happen after his death and after his resurrection, he said, And now, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So here's the picture. Before Jesus comes to earth and becomes a man, he's in heaven robed with glory, right? He takes off his robes of glory. He takes off his glory, if you will. Humbles himself, becomes a man, puts on human flesh. Pictured by the high priest taking off his elaborate robes, putting on the white linen garment. The high priest then goes into the Holy of Holies. He offers a sacrifice in this white linen garment. After he comes out, and it's all done, then he puts back on the robe of glory. After Jesus has gone into the heavenly Holy of Holies, offered the sacrifice, then he is robed once again in his robes of glory. Do you see that picture? 
It's an awesome picture. And I marvel, I wonder if the high priest, going through all these washings, taking off the elaborate robes, putting on the simple linen garment, I wonder if he, if he ever thought, why am I doing this? Why, what is a linen garment? What's this all about? I wonder if he knew. I wonder if he understood. But we're looking back with 2020 hindsight, aren't we? We're going, wow, wow, what a picture. What a picture. Jesus is saying, in effect, in that prayer in John's Gospel, Father, restore my robes of glory. I've finished the work of atonement. My work of humility is over. Restore now my glory. Wow, what a picture. Now I want to look with you for a moment at, at, the, uh, at this passage here, beginning at verse 6. Verses 6 through 10. Now, the, the first five verses, remember, he sets up the sanctuary. The writer says, now here's the sanctuary, here's, here's how it was set up. And then he's going to describe the, the actual sacrifice. So when everything had been arranged like this, meaning the sanctuary, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, that was the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So that's where we get this idea that the, this sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was to cover all those sins that they didn't remember, uh, were done in ignorance, um, they'd forgotten about and so forth. He says, the Holy Spirit, verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. This is an illustration, or literally a parable, for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered, now notice, were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the what? The new order. There's a new order coming. Now, when the high priest was dressed in that white linen garment, he took coals from the altar of incense and he put them in a pan with incense. It's called a censer. And with that, he carried, he carried that into the Holy of Holies where he burned the incense before the presence of the Lord. And I say, well, why did he burn incense before the presence of the Lord? Well, he did so, so that he wouldn't die. God said, no man can see me and live. Remember he told Moses that? And so the incense, the smoke in that little Holy of Holies room, would serve as a smoke screen, if you will, to protect the high priest from, from looking on the presence of God over the, the, uh, the mercy seat. This is what we're told back in Leviticus, in uh, chapter 16, verse 13. He says he's got to make sure this incense is burning in the Holy Holies, 
so that the high priest will not die. So he's got to take incense into that Holy of Holies. So that's the first thing he does. So he's, he goes in there and raises up a big smoke screen. Isn't that great? Would you want to make sure there's lots of smoke in there? Yeah, and you're in the presence of God. And God's already told Moses, no man can see me and live. So then he comes out of the Holy of Holies. He's got the, he's got the censer in there. The incense is burning away. Smoke is going on. His first, the next thing he does, he sacrifices a bull. And this bull he's purchased with his own money because it's a sacrifice for his own sins. Now this sacrifice is critical for his own purification because unless there's blood spilled and a sacrifice made, there can be no purification, there can be no um, cleansing, if you will, of the holy place and the, uh, the mercy seat. Because human beings will defile it. So the blood, again, symbolically cleanses from human defilement. So he takes the blood from this, from this sacrifice bull, goes back into the Holy of Holies, where he sprinkles it on the mercy seat. In, in effect, symbolically cleansing the Holy of Holies and the mercy seat from his own defilement, from his own uncleanness as a human being. Now, theoretically, a holy God can meet with unholy man because the temple or the, uh, the, the sanctuary, the holy place, has been cleansed by this sacrificed blood. So he, ought, he sprinkles this blood on the mercy. He comes back out of the Holy of Holies, and out by the um, bronze altar are waiting for him two goats. Now one goat, and, and, and these goats, they cast lots for these goats. One of the goats is going to be sacrificed to the Lord. The other goat is going to be called the scapegoat. And that goat's going to be led way out into the wilderness, far, 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 far away, and it's going to be let go. And hopefully lost. The idea is that it doesn't find its way back into the camp. I'll tell you why in a minute. Now the goat destined for the Lord was killed on the altar. Its blood, the high priest carries back into the Holy of Holies again, sprinkles it on the mercy seat, but this time not for his sins, but for the sins of the people. So who's the bull sacrificed for? The high priest. Who's the goat sacrificed for? The people, the sins of the people. Okay. Then he hurries back out of the Holy of Holies. This is the third time. He places his hands on the goat that's going to be called the scapegoat. And he pronounces the sins of the people. He lays his hands on the goat and in symbolically transferring all the sins of the people onto the goat. And then the goat is led out of the camp, far, far away, and turned loose. The idea is it's to be lost and it's never to return again. Now, the first goat represented satisfaction of God's justice. See, God is just. God just can't wink at sin. He can't just pretend like we don't sin. He is just, and his justice must be satisfied. This is the point of the sacrifices. Now, he's a perfect God, therefore he demands what kind of justice? Perfect justice. Can the blood of a goat 
perfectly satisfy God's justice? No. Could it act as a symbol? Pointing to some other agency that may, some point down the future, perfectly satisfy God's demand for perfect justice? Yes. And if God's if God doesn't demand perfect justice, he's not God. He's inconsistent with his nature. Okay? So, this first goat represents, the one that's killed, represents a satisfaction. Remember, it's symbolic. It represents a satisfaction of God's justice in the fact that sin now has been paid for. But remember, it is, is it real or is it symbolic? It's symbolic. This is the day of atonement, or Yom Kippur, the day of covering. Sin is only covered over. It's not washed away. It's not cleansed, really. This is all symbolism, and it's paramount that this congregation of Hebrews see and understand this. The second goat represents the satisfaction of man's conscience. So whereas the first goat represented the satisfaction of God's justice, the second goat represents the satisfaction of man's conscience. Because now he, 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 had, he had knowledge of freedom from the penalty of sin. His conscience could be clear. Still again, we see Christ in these things. In his own death, Jesus paid for man's sin, didn't he? Thereby he satisfied God's justice. And he also carried our sins far from us, didn't he? So he's represented by both of those goats. And both of those goats, the one that was sacrificed, Jesus, pictures Jesus in being sacrificed for our sins, and the goat that's being led out to the wilderness is a picture of Jesus carrying our sins far, far, far from us. In fact, Jeremiah said what? I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I will remember them no more. They're, he just carried them away. Off far, far into the wilderness. And because of that, we can have peace of mind and we can have a clear conscience. See, that one final sacrifice. Jesus died once for all. Once for all time, once for all men, once for all sin. His sacrifice is sufficient for everybody who would receive it by faith. And we can have, this is the wonder of what it means to be a Christian. You can have a clear conscience and peace of mind that all of your sins have been punished. Well, what about my sin today? It's already been punished. Well, does that mean I need to confess it? Well, yeah. You need to confess it, you need to acknowledge it, so that what? So that your fellowship with the Lord can be restored and so that your joy can be restored. But that sacrifice has dealt with all that sin. Once for all. Now the Hebrews had to come back again every year and, and re-offer that one sacrifice that would give them, uh, presumably, a clear conscience. You and I can have a clear conscience. Is that not exciting? I hope to shout. <laughs> yeah. I know you're warm. Is it warm in here? Should we turn on the fans and open the doors? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Now, after, after the, the sacrifice of the goat and the, and the other goats led away, the high priest goes one more time back into the Holy of Holies. This is the fourth trip he makes into the Holy of Holies. And what does he do in there this last time? He retrieves the censer, retrieves the incense, and brings it out. So he's made his last trip. Man, can you imagine? Wouldn't it be nerve-wracking going in there four times? Yeah, it would. If you knew you're going into the very presence of God. See, I think today most Christians have, have so trivialized sin and have so reduced God to their own image, they, they, they don't even have a, a, a clue in terms of the terror that, uh, that held these people when the high priest went in there, let alone the high priest. This guy had to be just, I mean, one scared puppy. I mean, think about it. On one hand, you're thrilled to death you get to do this. But on the other hand, you're going, oh, man, I hope everything is in order. Because we're in big trouble if it's not. Now, he tells us, if you look back at the passage in verse 8, that the Holy Spirit is showing something by this. The Holy Spirit shows us three things. I want to run by these three things with you. The first thing that the Holy Spirit is showing or teaching us is that the worship of God in the old sanctuary was limited. Basically, there was no access to God. No access to God in the old sanctuary. The people could only come so close. The people could only come into what? Into the outer court. The priests could only come into the sanctuary. The high priest, the only, and only the high priest could go into what? Into the inner sanctuary, into the Holy of Holies. So they could only come so close to God. They were extremely, extremely limited. The picture is no real access to God in the old sanctuary. Verse 8 tells us that while the first tabernacle still stood, there was no way into God's presence. Again, this, the whole idea, it's symbolic. The first sanctuary was only symbolic of access to God. It was symbolic of access to God. It pointed to, and it had to give way to the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, and the perfect covenant. All in Christ, right? It's only when Jesus died, and it's only when he ascended. Listen to the Apostle Paul. When Jesus died and when he ascended to heaven, did he lead captives in his train? He brings people into the Holy of Holies. He brings people into the presence of God. Nobody else can come into the presence of God. There is no other avenue. There is no other way. Except that believers come into God's presence by Jesus. He alone can take us into God's presence in heaven. It could only be opened when the first sanctuary passed off the scene. That's what he's telling us. So the first thing the Holy Spirit is saying is basically there's no access to God in the old sanctuary, really. The second thing that he teaches us 
is that the cleansing accomplished through the old sacrifices was imperfect. The cleansing accomplished through the old sacrifices was imperfect. The Israelites never really knew if they were forgiven. They never really had confidence that they were forgiven. The scapegoat was sent out to be lost in the wilderness. Presumably all the sins would be carried away. But there's always a chance of that scapegoat finding its way back. I mean, imagine. You're thinking, God, I hope that goat doesn't come back. If the goat comes back, what is it saying to you? Man, my sin's back. So there's this thought, you know, okay, sin's being cast away, hallelujah, all right. But I never really had confidence. I was never sure that my sin would be forgiven. There was no real assurance of cleansing, Hence, no real freedom of conscience. Imagine living that way. There's, there are people today, people in the church, professing Christians, who are unsure of their salvation. Unsure of their salvation, unsure that their sins are really forgiven. Is that not a miserable way to live? You come to church, you put your money in the bucket, you sing the songs, you raise your hands, you go to mini church, you do all the stuff, but you're living with this uncertainty that your sins aren't forgiven. You're just not sure. Is that not a miserable way to live? This is the way the Israelites lived. Do you see why, he, why, why the scriptures exhort us, we're not under law, we're under grace? And the, the, the challenge is to learn to live by faith in, in the grace of God. And we'll get to that. The sacrifices were only a symbol of cleansing. They were, o- they were only external. They were never meant to cleanse from sin, really. All they could do is cover over temporarily. And they would cover over temporarily just to the next sacrifice. And they all pointed to what? That one final sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Every human being has to deal with sin, don't they? Every human being has to deal with guilt. Every human being has to deal with conscience. Every human being. Now the Bible says you can sear your conscience. You can make it hard. You can, you can resist uh, 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 conviction but you don't want to do that do you but every human being has to deal with this issue of sin and if the truth be known every human being would love to have a clear conscience every philosophy and religion in the world in somehow attempts to alleviate our guilt and our pain and give us some freedom, defining it somehow. 
But there's only one, there's only one way. There's only one way that you can have absolute confidence of forgiveness of sin and a clear conscience. There's no other way. And I would submit to you that that is biblical Christianity, Jesus Christ. The Israelite could never have a clear conscience and a deep, abiding sense of forgiveness. They never had that peace down deep inside, I am forgiven. And it's a settled issue. But you and I can. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is teaching. Looked at the old sanctuary, the old sacrifices. Now thirdly, he's teaching that the old covenant was temporary. The old covenant was temporary. Whether the scapegoat found its way back or not, the sacrifices, whether they were daily or the yearly sacrifice, they still all had to be repeated. It mattered not if the scapegoat came back or or not. The sacrifices still had to be repeated. The system, the old covenant system, was never ever intended to last forever. It was not even intended to last through human history. When did it start? Did it start at the beginning of human history? No, it started about, what, 2,500 years approximately into human history, if you use the biblical record. When did it end? Did it, is it still in force? No, it ended approximately 2,000 years ago. So the old system was temporary. It never was meant to last throughout human history. It was never meant to service mankind in terms of mankind's great need for forgiveness. As of now, it's been nearly 2,000 years since the last sacrifice was made in the temple anyway, hasn't it? Had many sacrifices offered lately. Do you know of any? I mean, in terms of the Old Testament? No, none. They have no place to offer them, and they have no priesthood to offer them by. The old symbols, the old forms were meant to serve only, he says, until the time of the new order. All these things were in place just as a temporary picture until the new order came. When did the new order come? When Jesus came, that's right. That's right. Only the new covenant now in Christ could change, could amend, could literally reform that which needed reforming, that which needed to be set right. See, the old sacrifices, the old system, could not set men right with God. Only what Christ has done under the new covenant can set men right with God. No other system can do this. You say, but didn't God ordain the old covenant and the old sacrifice? Yes, he did. They were ordained of God. They were meaningful. They were purposeful. But they were limited, imperfect, and temporary. And therefore, they were ultimately unsatisfactory. They only pictured Christ. They could not do the work of Christ. They were only pictures of the better things to come. If you're a Christian, you have received the better things to come. You are part of this new order that he's talked about. And when Jesus comes into a life, he reorders that life. 
He does the things that you and I can't do. He does the things that no system can do. He does the things that no psychiatrist can do. He does the things that no 12-step group can do. Only Jesus can come into a life and change a life. Only Jesus can transform a life. I had a conversation with a pastor not too long ago. And, and we were talking, and he was, oh, he was just, lean on Jesus. Jesus is the way. Boy, faith in Jesus, and he will, and I'm just, I'm just rejoicing and listening to this. And most of you know that I'm, I'm not fond of psychiatry and psychology. And, and then the next thing out of his mouth was, well, my therapist. And I said, wait a minute. Didn't you just tell me? That Jesus is all you need? That you're leaning on Jesus? That you're walking by faith, trusting, waiting on Him to work the transformation in your life that no one else can do? Didn't you just tell me that? Yeah, but... I was speechless. Because He knew what to say but he didn't know how to live it out. He didn't know. This is a pastor. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth. I was, I was, I was horrified. Either Jesus is who he says he is, the transformer, the reformer, the changer of people, or he's not. And he's not going to change me in my timetable. He's going to change me in his timetable. And the challenge for me is to learn to wait upon the Lord, wait upon the Lord, trust in Him, hope in Him, be confident in Him, and He will help me. There's a new order, beloved. Jesus has come into this life, and He has come into this world, and He's brought this new order, and there's nobody else, nobody else that can make the changes that Jesus can make. Beloved, we are born again. We are new creatures in Christ. We have a whole new hope, a whole new vision, and a whole new confidence. And it's based on the rock of Jesus. Amen? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are who you are. I thank you. Lord, that you are my resource. Lord, I thank you for all the people who want to help. I thank you for all the people who have compassion and a desire to to make a difference in, in our lives. But Lord, you're the only one that can really make the difference. We know that you can work through other people. But Lord, unless we trust you, unless we wait on you, unless we're willing to to walk obediently by faith with you, we'll never experience those changes, no matter how many people in our lives. Thank you for this new order. Thank you, Lord, for the beautiful picture of the old sanctuary and the old sacrifices that only reinforce the truth of who you are and what you do. Lord, I pray that you would anoint us with a fresh understanding and a fresh enthusiasm and a fresh hunger for you, that you indeed would be Lord of our lives 
and that we would be people who would be moved um, like never before to walk obediently with you. Lord, have your way in our life. Because it's only then that we'll be able to know your will in our life. We give you praise tonight. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 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 Jesus is the answer, beloved. No matter where you are, no matter what's going on in your life, I tell you, Jesus is the answer. Let's stand and let's sing his praise one more time before we dismiss. By the blood I may enter your brightness. Search me, try me, consume all my darkness. That's our prayer, isn't it? Lord, search me, try me, consume all my darkness. Change me. I bless you with just a, a confidence in Jesus like you've never had.